HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Lexi Bloom, Senior Editor at Knopf. In today's episode, we'll talk to Lexi about the new book of Julia's quotes, the resonance of Julia's wisdom, and we'll hear Lexi's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our best to everyone coping with the pandemic and our gratitude to all the essential workers keeping the world running. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, our inspiration is Julia's wisdom. People have always enjoyed listening to and learning from Julia. She knew how to make complicated things sound doable, and she knew how to make it all entertaining and memorable. She was a dab hand at a turn of phrase. Many of the things she said during her 40-year career have entered the American lexicon, enduring for their candor, sincerity, and wit. 
Most of the favorites are funny, but also irreverent and even subversive. Every woman should have a blowtorch. Well, that one embodies a clear feminist edge, defying stereotypes. If you're afraid of butter, use cream. That was Julia telling off the fat police in her day. Some quotes associated with Julia aren't actually hers. For example, she often said, generally in response to being asked for her dietary advice, everything in moderation, even moderation. Oscar Wilde said that, and more likely in response to vices other than eating, but it was a mantra Julia lived by, that everything in life was to be enjoyed and savored. Why restrict yourself? Just don't go overboard. And therein is a great example of Julia's wisdom, presented with an easy-to-appreciate joie de vivre. Someone who deals with Julia's words and wisdom all the time is Knopf senior editor Lexi Bloom. Lexi took over editorial custody of Julia's body of work at Knopf, a Penguin Random House division, from the formidable Judith Jones. Judith was the visionary editor who, after publishing Anne Frank, convinced Alfred and Blanche Knopf to take a gamble on a weighty manuscript, eventually called, at Judith's insistence, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. It has become quite possibly the most influential cookbook in American history. Big shoes to fill. Lexi's edited many award-winning and best-selling writers of cookbooks and food narratives, from Deb Perelman, Spinton Kitchen, to Mouder Jaffrey, from Deborah Madison to Anita Lowe, and from Bill Buford to Joan Nathan, in addition to overseeing Julia's catalog. She was previously a senior editor at Knopf's sister division, Vintage and Anchor Books, where she worked on international titles in addition to cookbooks for Knopf. Lexi joins us today to share her thoughts about why Julia's wisdom still endures and to tell us more about Knopf's newly released authoritative compendium of Julia quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People, and Other Wisdom, which she edited with her colleague Tom Pold and me. Welcome to the podcast, Lexi. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. We're delighted you could be here and to talk about something joyful and fun. So why do you think Julia's quotes and wisdom remain so popular? It's a great question. Um, There are two reasons, I think. Um, First of all, Julia was such a great writer. You know, as you say, she was witty and warm and yet very opinionated, and that makes her so quotable. She wrote and spoke with such confidence and also with emphasis. Uh, One of my favorite quotes in the book says, drama is very important in life. You have to come on with a bang. You never want to go out with a whimper. Everything can have drama if it's done right, even a pancake. And (laughs) that's so wonderful. I love the idea, first of all, that everything can have drama, even a pancake. But I also love that she is clear that going out with a whimper is not an option. You need to be strong and bold. And she wrote that way. She spoke that way. And she lived that way, too. Well, that's such a great point that hadn't been in my mind. I was sticking with the wit and the fun of it. But I like what you said about the opinions and that I think that gets overlooked when when people talk about why someone's quotable. And so you really see it's that point of view and that she really was delivering quite specific ideas in her when she spoke to me publicly. Absolutely. And, you know, related to that and and possibly, you know, more important, more importantly, um, what Julia did, as we all know, um, was give people confidence in the kitchen. And she lived that way too. And 
one of my other favorite quotes in the book um, came from her 1975 book from Julie Child's Kitchen, which says, learn to cook, try new recipes, learn from your mistakes, be fearless, and above all, have fun. Um, and so she's giving people very clear advice. She's letting them make mistakes. She's saying it's okay to mess up. It's okay to try new things and have them turn out terribly. Just figure out what you did wrong. Try it again. Make sure you have a good time doing it. And that's all you need. And maybe a glass of wine. Um, you know, it's, it's great advice. I think it's the advice that we all want to hear. And do you think that that's one of the things that helps it endure is that she is this kind of advisor? I always thought, you know, one of the reasons she's so popular or stuff has resonated is she, she writes in that way that she's like the little angel on your shoulder helping you along. Completely. Yeah, I think that's exactly why. You know, she is right there with you. She's with you as you succeed at making your perfect omelet. She's with you when you drop it on the floor. Um, and she makes you feel okay about it. And and I really think for most cooks, you know, she she makes you feel that it is completely okay to to make a mistake and to be bold in doing so. And and it's that confidence that any cook needs, you know, whether or not you are a first time cook um, or whether you've been cooking for years. I want to talk a little bit about the timing of this book because it's really, I think, come out at a fortuitous time. But as as you know, we uh, when we first started talking about it, we had no idea we'd be where we are. But it really, I think, is hitting at a really good moment. So, what what do you think that that Julia's wit and wisdom offers at sort of such a contentious and difficult moment in time? I think there's a couple things. I mean, I think, you know, Julia, she allowed us, as I said, to feel confident, but she also inspired in people a, a real joy. You know, reading her words is is a joy and she gave us comfort. Um, and I think finding her words on the page now is a very sort of joyful experience. So it's, it's bringing that joy home um, when we may not have it otherwise and encouraging us to you know, cook for ourselves, cook for our immediate families, even if we can't gather in groups and, and sort of finding a solace in that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, given that you you talked about you know Julia's writing really well and have spent a lot of time looking at her words, I mean, do you have a feeling of how she would have approached the pandemic or what wisdom she would have had for for just the time and for people getting through it? So I didn't know Julia personally, as you know. You know, I only got to know her through her words and her TV shows. Um, but I, I did ask our um, our friend Alex Prudhomme, you know, Julia's grandnephew and co-writer of My Life in France, what he might have thought because I was curious for his take on this. Mm -hmm. So he reminded me first that in the 1980s, after Julia watched many friends die from AIDS, she became very outspoken about that terrible loss and and how she'd experienced it. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, you know, something. She said, you know, but what of those lonely ones? the ones with no friends or family to ease the slow pain of dying. Those are the people we're concerned about this evening. This was at a gala that she attended. And food is of very special importance here. Good food is also love. So it's that statement that I think is really essential. You know, good food is also love. How can we use food to love the people around us, to show love and to, um, to show respect? You know, I think she'd be looking back at that moment and encouraging people to think about those who are ill or dying alone in hospitals, unable to see their loved ones. I think. Um, I think she would be encouraging us to cook our way through this moment. Well, that that's really reassuring, having uh, gone through it backwards at the foundation of deciding very quickly that we needed to support restaurant and, and COVID yeah. relief efforts. And that I think that really speaks to what we were channeling our inner Julia's that 
Absolutely. In, in times of crisis, feeding people and making sure that those who are most um, able to feed people have resources to do so. And that's certainly been one of the hardest things, I think, you know, for people who are who are at home. Our instinct is to gather together, to gather around the table, you know, to take care of each other that way. And because we're not able to do that right now, you know, I think that's been that's been very hard on everyone. But do you think I, one thing I thought you were going to say, although you yeah. you sort of ended it, is that Julia would have been saying, although she didn't really take this attitude, it would be me saying this, but like, see, I told you knowing how to cook was going to be important. You should have listened better. <laughs> yes. She wasn't petulant like that. But so I was trying to think, how would Julia, Julia would have found a way to say it without people feeling that it was petulant? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I don't think it would have been scoldy. I think she would have just encouraged people to take it up. You know, now is the time to get into the kitchen and to cook and to do it with love because that's what we have right now. Yeah, I, she just wasn't a gloater. But I, but there are so many things that she was saying that were so prescient about the food system and, you know, yes. in in honoring Danielle Nuremberg for the Julia Child Award. There were just so many things of what Danny's trying to do, which now, which were things Julia was saying, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's go back to the quote specifically for the book. What was the sort of approach that you started with and how did you kind of decide, you know, which to choose or how to, what approach you take in deciding what makes for a book of Julia's quotes? Yeah. So as you mentioned, my colleague, Tom Pold and I um, worked together with you to compile this book. Um, And, you know, it all started, I think you'll remember this, because I received a birthday card that read, a party without cake is just a meeting. (laughs) It was attributed to Julia. And as you and I both know, no one can find any documentation that Julia actually said that. Um, So that's sort of what got me thinking. We we really could use a great book of Julia's quotes, you know, her her bun mo, her wit and wisdom, because everybody loves her and they love to quote her. So let's get it right. Um, So from there, Tom and I went through all of her books, um, including My Life in France um, and then um, Alex's book, The French Chef in America, other biographies. And probably the highlight for me was reading Julia's letters. Mm. Um, I love reading letters. You know, I we're living in an era punctuated by the loss of good letter writing, but she was such a great correspondent. Um, so I loved reading the collection, as always, Julia, which was edited by Joan Reardon. Mm. And that's a collection of Julia's letters to and from uh, Avis DeBoto. Um, and the letters are filled with so much personality. I mean, they're personal and chatty and honest about food and politics and literature and art. Um, so we got a lot of great quotes from those letters too. So, you know, from there we created our master document and then we, we narrowed it down into the list of quotations that we felt were sort of most representative of Julia's joie de vivre. Yeah, no. And I would say the book, the book is, it, it's not an exhaustive list of everything no. Julia ever said. No, certainly not. It's a curated, you know, kind of take of kind of the most, meaningful, significant, and to some degree, I think, iconic things that she said that really have stood the test of time and also a bit stand on their own. I felt like when I looked at quotes, they often are really good, but then you realize, oh, it'd have to be an entire page because you'd need yes. to know what she was talking about. Is that one of the things, hurdles that you kind of thought you were coming across sometimes? Too? Yeah, because here you're coming across just the quote on the page, you know, maybe with an illustration, but that's it. There's no context. So they had to be able to stand on their own without any context. And you had to, you know, um, it's the kind of book that you can read from start to finish, or you can open a page and, you know, read it in any order you choose. So it had to work that way, too. It had to work sort of as a dual narrative. 
And I hope it becomes and can see it becoming like a shelf staple when people want to quote Julia, they can be like, oh, yes, I have that on my shelf. I'll double check what she said on on this or that subject. Exactly. Exactly. We hope the same thing. And I wanted to hear if you have your own personal interpretation. And I mean this personal. I'm not trying to Mm -hmm. get you to guess what you think Julia meant by it, but sort of more like what it means to you. Obviously, you were involved in the choosing of it. So when you think about people who love to eat are always the best people, what does that Mm -hmm. quote mean to to you, Lexi? Um, So, you know, I'll sort of back up a little bit to answer that question, because the title comes from one of the letters that she wrote to Avis DeFoto. Um, So I'm going to do the thing that we don't do in the book and give you a little context for it. Oh, that's um, helpful because and, that, that, that I think is important because it's so often, this quote is so often used and attributed. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I went back to the original letter um, and it, it reads this. It was from January 5th, 1953. And she wrote, Dear Avis, just a short note to acknowledge yours, which came in this morning. I'm about to rush out to do my marketing and then settle down to my soups. I can't tell you my emotions of love and gratitude for all your interest and hard work in the behalf of our book. You display the true marks of a great gourmand which always includes the warmest and most generous of natures and is why people who love to eat are always the best people. So I love that. I mean, Julia is expressing her deep gratitude to Avis for understanding her work and for being willing to help her with her continued search for a publisher because she's trying to publish what becomes Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And she's so grateful to Avis for just getting her and what she wants to do. And she captures that gratitude in the context of food. It's like a, a like-mindedness, a sense of shared values and of generosity and understanding. And to me, that's the spirit of the book. That's what she meant. You know, do we share the same values? Can we share a seat together around the same table? Yeah, no, I'm struck by that. And, and that's so helpful to, to hear the, the sort of origin story of that famous mm-hmm. quote, because I think it also speaks to what she, the reason she was saying it is not just to like, ostracize people who aren't as into food, but she's saying like, oh, now I understand why we get on so well. We have the same shared, shared interests. And exactly. um, We speak the same language, basically, you know, we communicate the same way. um, And that's why she was saying that's why we're friends. So it was a statement of friendship as much as anything else. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing the the, sure. the the background. And so are there other, I know you, you said already a couple of your favorites. Are there, yeah. are there some others that really resonate with you or that you love to think about? Or There are, there are a couple of them that I love. Um, just finding the ones that I have flagged here for you. Um, okay. So I love, no one is born a great cook. One learns by doing which emphasizes what we talked about already, which is the idea that you need to be fearless, you can make mistakes, and that's how you learn your way around the kitchen. Mm. Um, And I say that as someone who is often a perfectionist, who sometimes (laughs) isn't great at making mistakes, so I feel like Julia gives me license to do it, and it's okay. Yeah. Um, And another one of my favorites, um, it's sort of a joke in my family how much I love soup, um, and now my daughter is the same way, she can eat it every day. So Mm. I really love the Julia quote that says, there is hardly a man alive who does not adore soup, particularly when it is homemade. Hot soup on a cold day, cold soup on a hot day, and the smell of soup simmering in the kitchen are fundamental, undoubtedly even atavistic pleasure and solaces that give a special kind of satisfaction. Lovely. Yes. I, th- I think I might like cold soup more than appropriately, soups that are meant to be cold, <laughs> um, more, more than hot soup. I'm a very big gazpacho fan, so... Well, great. 
Well, thank you for sharing those with us. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Knopf Senior Editor Lexi Bloom to talk about Julia's wisdom and also about cookbook writing. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Knopf, Senior Editor Lexi Bloom, about the new book of Julia's Quotes, People Who Love to Eat, are always the best people, and other wisdom, and also about Julia's legacy as a writer. So you were mentioning this before, of Lexi, about how you you know feel strongly about how good Julia's writing is, and that it's distinctive and opinionated. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that, partly for people who are you know either big fans of reading or or reading cookbooks or aspiring cookbook writers, if you would talk a little bit more about what made Julia a great writer, because I kind of feel like she's not, Mastering is known as this like really important book and she's known as this big personality. But usually when you ask people about Julia, they talk about her dropping things on TV or she was so charming (laughs) or she's funny, but they're not like, oh my God, she was an amazing writer. Um, I think she was an amazing writer. Um, can I read you another quote? Um, Please, go ahead. Uh, she, this one is also in our book, and it says, Wallop your steaks, whoosh up your egg whites, and behind your chafing dish and before your guests, act with assurance and decisiveness. Look at those verbs, wallop and whoosh. You know, who says that? I don't know any other culinary writer who writes like that. And she's so detailed and dramatic, and yet she's exactly to the point. Um, and also, you know, her attention to detail is second to none. Um, you know, in thinking about um, this podcast this weekend, I made her book Bourguignon and I hadn't made it in a while um, because it is an undertaking. You know, it is a full afternoon's project of cooking. But you read her recipes and you just relish in the detail and the specificity. And she tells you exactly what to do. She tells you when to do it. She also tells you why you're doing every little step. You know, there's no room for confusion. There's no room for error. And she says it all with great personality. So you really trust her, but she also makes you smile. I think that's that's an excellent and succinct summation. I say I always marvel, like as you were saying with with reading that quote, Julia was very able to say a lot with yes. very few words, which is the mark of a great writer. But 
do you think that was learned in practice or do you think she was just sort of a natural? I think she was probably a natural. And I go back again to her letters. You know, this is as she's writing Mastering and she's toiling over it and revising and revising it. But the roots are there in the letters that she wrote to her friends, you know, in that correspondence. So I think that was probably all always there. And then I think, you know, working with someone like Judith who could help sort of coax things out and, and tease things out and, and sort of tell her also where to um, to scale back, you know, where she needs to be a little more specific um, or cut out the extra detail. Um, I think it was probably a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my neat thing. I think we're lucky for the sexism of the age, because I do think Julia could have been a great advertising copywriter. But the Absolutely. combination of women meant to be housewives of the era and the fact that I also think Julia was pretty unfocused, we, we otherwise would have not been here having this conversation. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so you mentioned that you did a kind of exhaust, exhaustive search through her different books. And I was curious because, you know, Mastering is the beloved one and the one that people always reference for, for very good reason. But it wasn't the only book she wrote. And I, I wanted to see if you would highlight, you know, one or other of your favorites or ones that you think are maybe a little bit more unsung. Um, there's two, I think I would mention for two different reasons. Um, I would mention, I think first the French chef cookbook, which was mm -hmm. Julia's second book. Um, and that's the collection of recipes from her first PBS show, the French chef, um, which began in 1963. And then the book was published in 1968. And I feel like that is a wonderful way to watch the show, you know, to, to see what she did. That was so groundbreaking in television, but cook along with her. Um, so it's a sort of nice, uh, view and window into um, who she was as a kind of early television star. Um, and then another book that I'd mention, and this is more of a kind of, you want to give a gift to somebody, but you don't know what to get. Mm. A little volume um, that she put together in 2000, towards the end of her life, um, called Julia's Kitchen Wisdom, is a book that I think everyone should have in their kitchen. You know, she teaches you how to make a vinaigrette. She teaches you how to roast. She teaches you how to braise. She teaches you basic French desserts. To me, you know, no matter if someone is just graduating from college and needs a cookbook or if someone is older and cooking, you know, alone for the first time, it's a perfect book. So I love both of them for different reasons. Yeah, I think those are great, great suggestions because the French chef cookbook is really comprehensive exactly. and it's really unusual because it's not organized. It's organized by episode, Correct. which is quite different than any book you'd find even connected to a TV show these days. Um, so you're right. You really get that feel. And the Kitchen Wisdom is is much more of a slight, like easy reference book. So it's, you know, it's sort of like just the facts, ma'am. And you don't have to wade through loads of other stuff to get to I need that pie crust recipe that I've forgotten. Yeah, it is completely the basics, but it's like all the basics that you'll ever need. Well, I want to change gears for a second and talk sure. to you about working with Judith Jones. So I know you didn't meet Julia, but I know you did work with Judith. And I was curious, and you certainly work with Judith where she had the she had her own acquired years of experience and years of wisdom. So I, you, my question is, what's the best advice she gave you? Maybe she didn't give you advice, or, or at least not directly, but what did you take from that experience? Um, so she actually did give me direct advice. Um, and she, you know, she was this kind of fabulous, formidable, um, small, but formidable figure, you know, <laughs> always impeccably turned out in the hallways at Knopf. Um, and everyone sort of revered her, even though we were maybe a little intimidated by her. 
Um, so when I signed up my first cookbook, which was 10 years ago, um, I'd been a book editor for about 10 years before that, but I never worked on a cookbook, even though I love to cook and I love to eat and I love to read cookbooks. So for my first cookbook, I had written um, to a popular food blogger, Deb Perlman at Spin Kitchen, and I wrote her a fan letter, unsolicited. And I heard back from her agent, who I didn't know at the time, a couple months later. She said, you know, I'm going out for a proposal. Do you want to see it? I said, yes, of course. I would love to see it. But just so you know, I've actually never edited a cookbook, but I've edited lots of other books. And I love to cook and I love to eat and I read cookbooks. And I'm surrounded by talented colleagues who know a lot about cookbooks. So long story short, I got the book. And Judith was still working um, at Knopf at the time, even though she was well into her 80s at that point. Um, and I sent her an email saying, you know, I was so thrilled. I just signed up this book. And would she be willing to meet with me? And she wrote me back right away. And I still remember the text of the email, which said, you know, I heard about the book and I think it's great exclamation point. <laughs> and then she arranged to take me out to lunch. Um, so she took me to lunch and she gave me two completely invaluable pieces of advice. Um, first, she said, tell your writers not to be afraid of using articles in recipes. And by that, I don't mean, you know, newspaper articles. I mean, <laughs> stop dropping the and a. <laughs> so instead of saying, you know, put pan on stove, put a pan on the stove because it lacked personality. You know, it was unnecessarily sloppy. Um, and you can go back and look at Julia, you know, to see how, you know, these were properly written recipes and they had personality, but they were also kind of a pleasure to read. And so she was encouraging me to encourage my writers to always do that. Um, and the second thing she told me was get in the kitchen with my authors as much as possible to actually see how they cooked. She said, I would be a better editor for it. You know, I would have a, a better time working with them and helping them work on their books if I understood their culinary processes. So I have tried to do that as well whenever I can. I love that. That's great. And and obviously, I, you can hear in that second one that that was actually something she learned by her yes. own trial and error and, you know, came Yeah, to. and something that I think she really relished. You know, she loved being in the kitchen with her authors. Now, is there was something you said at the beginning that I always wanted to ask. I, di I met Judith once or twice, but they yeah. were always at, like, conferences or big events, and it was for a very short time. But my sense is Judith was not, one of the reasons she was intimidating is she just wasn't someone who made a lot of small talk. No, she did not make a lot of small talk. Um, you know, she said everything um, for a reason. Um, and it was very precise. Um, and um, yeah, so I was really nervous, actually, in approaching her to ask for her advice. But she um, she could not have been lovelier. You know, she really was excited for me because I think she could see that this was something I really wanted to do and that I was excited about. And um, she was very genuine in her encouragement of me. And did you work on books with her? Because um, she did, also did more than cookbooks. Did you work on books with her ever that w were not not cookbooks? Or do, were, was it more sort of parallel? Um, I did not work on anything directly with her, though actually um, completely unrelated to cookbooks and related to other things that I do. Um, Judith uh, published translations of Albert Camus, and she did it for years. And in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the last one, was in 1989, she published a new translation of The Stranger. So mm -hmm. I'm actually publishing um, next fall, a new translation of The Plague. Um, it's the first new translation since the 50s. Um, and we are going to echo the way that that translation was published in 1989, you know, same small trim, small format. Um, we would like to do that for the translation of The Plague. So I feel like there's a nice parallel there too. Yeah, I'll say very, wow, that's neat.
And do you think there's something I was going to ask you, but something about, you know, does you almost now sounds contrived, like, do you feel like Judas legacy lives on at Knopf? But I think I'll ask it in a different way, because I feel like Knopf more than other publishers has a slightly different model where cook, usually a cookbook editor, or cookbook division is all cookbooks all the time, and they don't do other things. But it seems much more varied at Knopf. It's not as siloed as is, is, is that true or is that changing? Um, that's definitely true. You know, I think that for the most part at Knopf, we have always been generalists. Um, and it's been a pleasure and a privilege to be allowed to edit widely. You know, I'm interested in literature and translation, but I also love cookbooks and I've been able to do both. Um, I feel very, very fortunate to have been able to do that because it allows me to pursue working on books um, that I love. Um, you know, whether it's a food narrative or a cookbook or, you know, a novel translated from Japanese. So I think we are, you know, there are other, uh, there are other houses that, that allow you to do that, but I think they're, they're fewer and further between these days. And do you think in the end, talking about Julia's strength as a writer, that's also sort of where Knopf's lane is? It's publishing cookbooks that have either a more literary edge or voice to them or are, I don't know, treating the writing of it as important as the the other food-related content? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a, a couple answers to that question. You know, our, our cookbook list at Knopf is not enormous. Um, and so we choose pretty carefully about what we publish. Um, and so by that, I mean, you are less likely to find, you know, a lot of restaurant books or, you know, five ingredients, 20 minutes to a meal cookbooks on our list. Not that those books don't all have a place in the culinary sphere. It's just not what we publish. Um, what we do look for, and I think Judith's books set this as a kind of gold standard and we continue to aspire to that. Um, we look for a real perspective or a point of view on a topic. You know, we like to publish what we think are the definitive books on a subject. So Modern Joffrey on Indian cooking, Joe Nathan on global Jewish cooking, you know, more recently the chef Anita Lowe on cooking for one, um, the baker Melissa Weller on how to make perfect baked goods by understanding the science behind the baking process. So um, those are the books that we look for and we always want the writing to be on the page. You know, that was a kind of guiding um, principle from Sonny Mehta, um, our, our late editor-in-chief, um, you know, if it wasn't on the page, you couldn't sign it up. So um, even if I'm working on a book with a co-writer, um, which is unusual, you know, most of our cookbooks are actually written by the food writer themselves, but occasionally we have co-writers who come in. Um, and if they do, there's a reason for it. You know, if there's a chef who has a book to write, it's usually bigger than just the chef's restaurant. Um, it's, you know, about a chef who has something additional to say. Like, for example, I'm working with the James Beard award-winning chef, Eduardo Jordan, on his book, which is called Food with Roots. And that book, I hope, will be his definitive take on the African-American roots of Southern cooking. Mm. No, I think that's really helpful. And, and, and I think when you say it, it makes perfect sense. But I think when people get consumed in their, their own thing of what they're doing, they kind of lose sight of it, or they look toward publishers like, oh, well, I like these books. But I think that's really clear guidance that if you've approached your your new idea in your food writing with a strong literary or strong point of view, and it's very writer and voice driven, then it yeah. might be something to have sent to Kanaf. And I think the voice, you know, the voice is present in the head note. The voice is also present, as we talked about earlier, in the recipe. You know, it's not just instructions for how to cook something. 
it's um, it's something bigger than that. You know, it's kind of introducing um, a methodology and an ideology about cooking to you as you're working your way through a recipe. And that sounds, I realize that sounds sort of more complicated than it needs to. Um, but really, it's just making you feel like you understand what this person is trying to teach you. And they're your guide. Well, I feel like a great example of that is I applaud these. It was early on during the first lockdowns where people did these sort of recipe sharing things online <laughs> and chain emails, which I detest chain emails. But I was still the part of me that's like an advocate for cooking. I was like, I wanted to almost like for research, even see what people were sending. And I'm still cooking with one recipe I got, um, which I quite like. And then I threw it because where I live, you cannot buy enchilada sauce in the store. So you have to make it yourself. So now I, to my surprise, can make a homemade enchilada sauce, Excellent. Good um, which is actually quite easy and is actually quite healthy, surprisingly. It doesn't really have any junk in it at all. And um, but anyway, this recipe, though, that I use, which I've now changed, though, is, you know, not written by a professional recipe writer or cookbook writer. And so none of the ingredients are in order of when you need them, <laughs> which you, until you, if you're used to reading, you know, good cookbooks with, you you don't appreciate how annoying that is to suddenly be like, yes. what? Why is it in random order? Yeah, that is definitely a key to sort of proper recipe writing is you introduce the ingredients in the order that you're going to use them so you don't drive your home cook crazy. Yes, I mean, I'm now moving toward the next step is I have to rewrite this recipe so it doesn't make me crazy. Um, so I, the one last thing I want to ask you about that I think is quite fascinating, would love to hear, we've talked about it before, but um, if you have any update or just your further thoughts is what's happened to the book market and cookbook market during the pandemic. And um, certainly there's been a lot of discussion that everyone's buying books and cookbooks. Is, is that true? Yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, people, I mean, you know, in a way, a book is the perfect piece of technology for our current moment in time. You know, we're at home. Um, we have, you know, more time and time in a different way. I mean, even, you know, if you're home, I'm, I'm home working full time and I have a small child, so it's busy. But at the same time, you know, the, the weekends are this kind of open expanse that don't have gatherings and birthday parties and dance class and all the normal things. So we're cooking um, and reading um, and people are definitely buying books. You know, originally at the outset um, of the pandemic in March, people were buying, um, they were buying science books. Everyone was reading The Plague, back to Camus. Um, Camus <laughs> <laughs> yes, I thought it was not a coincidence you were no. working on that um, No, actually that, that started, um, that's been in the works for about a year and a half before this. Um, oh, so it wow. is a complete coincidence. Um, Amazing. Yeah, um, but, but everyone was reading The Plague and then people um, were also buying, you know, they were buying educational books. Um, and then things kind of evened out and people started going back to their, um, initial sort of reading trends. So people started reading fiction. Um, they sort of have gone back to the way they read, but people are home and they're reading um, and they're also cooking. So yeah, the book market, um, book sales themselves are doing okay. You know, we, um, I encourage everyone always to support their independent bookstores. Um, they need you. Um, you know, the bricks and mortar bookstores that are still open are struggling because they don't have people walking into the store yeah. and browsing in the same way. Yeah. So that's something that has really taken a hit. And, you know, hopefully they can all remain open. I think going into the Christmas holiday season, we very much hope that's the case. Um, so, yes, by all means, order from your independent bookstores, support all your booksellers. Um, but people are indeed uh, reading and they are cooking from cookbooks here. Well, that's exciting to yeah. hear and great news. 
All right. After the break, Lexi's going to share her own Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Lexi, what's your Julia moment? So my Julia moments, um, as I said, you know, I never met Julia, unfortunately. I, I wish that I had had um, the opportunity to do that. So I really came to Julia um, through her words on the page. And that's what, for me, as a book editor, I'm most interested in. Um, and I'm particularly interested in this idea of taste memories. You know, what are the food memories that transport us to another time and place in our lives? It's To me, it's a, a perfectly tangible way of thinking about how the mind works. Um, and so many writers have articulated this, obviously, you know, one thinks of Proust and his Madeleines, but Julia, I think, really excelled at it. And the most famous, of course, is her moment with Solmonier at the first lunch with Paul in Rouen. But you read her cookbooks and they're rich with them. Um, and, you know, I love a good roast chicken. Um, my grandmother made a perfect one. My husband makes a perfect one. We always joke that they would have needed a contest had they ever met. So <laughs> one of my favorite um, Julie passages is this on roast chicken from Maastricht. It says, you can judge the quality of a cook or a restaurant by roast chicken. While it does not require years of training to produce a juicy, brown, buttery, crisp-skinned, heavenly bird, it does entail such a greed for perfection that one is under compulsion to hover over the bird, listen to it, above all, see that it is continually basted and that it is done just to the proper turn. Um, and that right there to me is the gold standard of food writing. You know, who could say it better than that? <laughs> um, so, you know, for me, my Julie moment comes on the page where you just marvel at her ability to capture these culinary moments and these memories um, in words. And it is um, a continued source of inspiration. And it's something that I hold dear when I work on any cookbook at any time. Oh, that's lovely. And you know what? Julia would have loved that because I think the roast chicken gets at the heart of any <laughs> chef or cook. And Absolutely. All every, every cook needs one. Yes, but I'll tell you, do you want to know my dirty secret about how Please. you get the best roast chicken? Yes. It's not that, it's not brilliant, but it's easy. It's first start with the best chicken you can buy. That will right. elevate your roast chicken 1,000 times. And even if it means you have to eat chicken less often to buy a, either an organic or local bird, or um, it can make a difference. And, you know, it's not. It just back to your quote of practice. That's really all it takes is to you. If you roast a chicken often enough, you will figure out how to kind of do it by heart and by feel. Exactly. I would also say, and this is actually my, my husband's trick, so he gets credit for this. You start with a very hot oven. Even if you're turning the heat down, um, you start with a nice hot oven and it makes the skin crisp up beautifully. Yeah. So that's right. Mostly about skin crisping. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I'm too lazy to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so delicious. 
It is true. I'll tell you another terrible secret that um, I find that works is um, actually if you microwave chicken skin, like as leftovers, (laughs) I know, which is sacrilege to so many. There's something about that, that it, it, it like crisp it and dries it further. Like I wouldn't do that for entertaining others, but secretly, (laughs) if you're just having lunch yourself with leftover chicken and want to, you know, you've put the chicken skin in the fridge, which does, you know, horrors to it. That's a a terrible secret, but it tastes good. <laughs> we actually, um, we do not have a microwave. So, uh, so I cannot join you on that particular. <laughs> well, if you I'll find yourself in a rental with my, a microwave, <laughs> exactly. that, that was exactly. for the broader audience. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lexi. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. It was a pleasure. Likewise. And thanks everyone for joining us. The new book of Julia's quotes is people who love to eat are always the best people and Other Wisdom by Julia Child, and it's out now from Julia's longtime publisher, Knopf, a division of Penguin Random House. Ask for it or search for it at your favorite bookseller, independent, if you can find it still. It makes a wonderful gift this holiday season. And to learn more about Knopf and its upcoming titles, it's A-A-K-N-O-P-F on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even sign up for their cooking e-newsletter, as well as ones on other subjects, if you go to knopfdoubleday.com forward slash preferences. For the latest podcast episodes and foundation news, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>